Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York, its history, its neighborhoods, the texture and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, like tonight's, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life for you. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, believe it or not. We've looked at the history of women activists and the suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at bicycles and cycling. They've been part of the fabric of New York for more than 200 years. We've looked at the history of punk and opera, two of my passions. They were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our library systems. Uh, we have three in New York, by the way, believe it or not. We have three public library systems. We visited the subway, public art. We've visited some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges, just to name a few. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcasts. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, and other services. Well, tonight we're journeying to a place that's sort of close to my heart because it's not far from where I grew up in the Brooklyn of my of the borough of my home, which is Brooklyn, and that is Diker Heights. And we're going to have a lot of fun with this because we have two great guests and some topics that uh, even those who are not uh, initiated in New York will come to appreciate. My first guest is no stranger to the program. He's Jeremy Wilcox. Uh, Jeremy is a licensed New York City tour guide. He's a New York native, and he's the owner of a company called Custom NYC Tours. His small group of private walking tours focuses on the city's neighborhoods and the city's history, art, and architecture. Jeremy also serves on the board of the Guides Association of New York City. It's one of the oldest and most active tour guide associations in the United States. Jeremy Wilcox, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure. You're originally from New York, aren't you? Yes, I grew up in a fairly sleepy neighborhood in Queens called uh, Richmond Hill, South Richmond Hill to, uh, to be precise. And now I live here in Brooklyn. And where in Brooklyn do you live since we're doing a program on a, on, on a special Brooklyn neighborhood? I live in um, Flatbush, just south of Prospect Park. In a neighborhood that one might call Victorian. Brooklyn, Victorian. Yes, but, uh, sort of, yeah, just sort of around the sort of edges of Victorian Flatbush, which is uh, sort of one of my specialties and a beautiful place to check out for anyone who's never been there. And uh, I'm actually going to ask you about uh, some of the tours you're, you're conducting now a little later in the program. Um, but in general, when did you decide that you would go into the business of designing and leading tours of this amazing city that we live in? So I started uh, doing tours in the spring of 2016. Um, it was something I kind of had in the back of my mind for a few years. I loved, even before I was getting paid to do it, exploring New York City neighborhoods and showing people around. I would drag all my poor friends around every weekend and being like, we're going to go explore this neighborhood. And uh, it was after, I think, an exploration of Red Hook that a friend of mine was like, you're really good at this. You should uh, quit the job that you hate and go do this professionally instead. And it took me a few months to let that rattle around in my head, but that's was the spark. Mm. Well, and what better place to conduct tours of neighborhoods than New York? We have so many of them and the history here is, is, is so long, not by European standards, but certainly by American standards. Um, the names of many New York neighborhoods have interesting oranges, uh, oranges, origins. <laughs> um, I want to ask you how Diker Heights got its name. But first, let's go back a little bit, uh, maybe 350 years to when the Dutch first settled in what would become Diker Heights. And even before, like much of the area, um, were there local Lenape people living here before the Europeans came? Yes. Uh, so long before European colonization began in the 17th century. This was all sort of land 
overseen by the local Lenabe tribes um, who are just sort of living and far harvesting and farming in these, uh, these lands before, you know, I mean, before Europeans began settling on these shores. And when did the Dutch first settle the area, Jeremy? So the Dutch really began to settle Brooklyn really in the early to mid uh, 1600s. But what is now we think of as, as Diker Heights uh, was officially settled in 1657 um, as one of the five Dutch towns of what would eventually become Brooklyn, uh, which they called New Utrecht, obviously named after the town of Utrecht in the Netherlands. In other towns that were that also had Dutch names, there was New Amsterdam, which was the first. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there was New Harlem, which became Harlem, and New Utrecht, and uh, there were also was uh, Bushwick, which mm -hmm. became Bushwick, and Flockbush, uh, which became Flatbush, uh, and uh, New Amsterfort, and you know many others that sort of eventually uh, changed their names. But yes, New Utrecht was the official name of this uh, town, which would comprised of everything from, you know, modern day Diker Heights, as well as uh, Bay Ridge and all those surrounding areas, sort of Southern Brooklyn. Was there actually a village in New Utrecht or was it more of just a bunch of farms and, and, a, and a farming community? Was there a village that, that we would have seen back in those days? Not really. I mean, of all of the, the Dutch towns in that area, it really was the least settled overall. Um, it was mostly woodland really up until the mid 19th century. Uh, there were, you know, people doing some farming there, but it wasn't as active as, say, you know, Flatbush would have been around the same time. It was mostly just forest uh, land for most of the uh, that time during the Dutch era. Hmm. And where does the name Diker Heights come from, Jeremy? So that's kind of, you know, an interesting debate. Obviously, we'll get into this later on, but like when one of the uh, first developers named the area Diker Heights, they said, oh, it was named you know, after the Diker Meadows, and then people are like, well, where did the Diker Meadows get its name from? And there's two sort of interconnected competing theories. There's no, nobody believes they have a definitive answer. Uh, We'd like controversy and- uh, Yes, there is the controversy. And, 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 and you ask, you know, a couple of different tour guides and they'll give you a different answer in this, but um, there was a Dutch family uh, living in the area, in, in the town of New Utrecht uh, called the, the Van Dyke family. Um, so a lot of people say, oh, well, that it was, you know, it was the Diker Heights because it was the Van Dyke family living there. But simultaneously, uh, the Van Dykes and others, they were using literal dikes to drain the marshlands and to drain the meadows. Um, and so people believe, oh, it was named Diker after the actual dikes, um, part of some of which were used by the Van Dyke family. So it's, you know, I guess part of it's in like a chicken egg, like where exactly did it come from? There's no definitive answer. Even, you know, a lot of New York in Brooklyn historians don't know definitively, but the answer lies somewhere in between those two, you know, uh, fam the family or the dykes. It's kind of like trying to pin the name of Fire Island. Where does that come from? I think there are five different explanations for it. Yeah. And again, ask five different tour guides and they'll give you five, you know, 10 different answers probably. Well, we can't talk about Diker Heights uh, without discussing a major U.S. military fort, which is actually a still an active military base. Uh, and that's Fort Hamilton, which was established long before the residential development in the neighborhood was, in the area was. Um, before the fort was built itself, so I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about Fort Hamilton. Was there a coastal defense that was first built on these shores before the fort actually went out? Yes. So before Fort Hamilton existed, there was a small battery, um, more or less on the same site that was just simply known as the Narrows Fort, uh, which was there during the time of the American Revolution. Uh, it was, uh, did see active duty during the, uh, the Battle of Brooklyn in 1776, uh, also known as the Battle of Long Island. So the Narrows Fort was there and eventually Fort Hamilton, which was a larger, more proper fort, was built on its site. I would add that Fort Hamilton today is the only remaining active Department of Defense sort of fortification in the entire city of New York. Oh, so obviously in Fort Wadsworth has been decommissioned. Yes, uh, as military well, it's base. a beautiful place to visit. Um, it's yes. kind of a historic site. Well, I, mean, I, was, I went there on a weekend uh, in the Boy Scouts in the 1970s, and it was still an active military base. It was kind of exciting that we got uh, access to it. Um, and in a bit of military history, which, by the way, is one of your specialties, um, there, is, there is the other military base right across from uh, the Narrows, that's the Verrazano Narrows, and that is Fort Wadsworth. 
um, which we actually visited on a past episode, by the way, if anyone wants to get the archives, it's episode 59 in March of 2019. Why was there a need to build a fort on this side of the water when there was one right on the other side of the Narrows, when cannon fire in the day clearly could reach the other side of the relatively narrow waterway? Why did they build another fort here? So that's a good question. I mean, just in general, all these forts were built, you know, after the War of 1812, when there was recognized a major need for coastal protections. Um, and so you had a number of coastal forts all throughout the city, um, many of which are still there in one form or another as these kind of beautiful historic sites. But Fort Hamilton, one of its actually primary purposes was as a defensive site for Fort Lafayette, uh, which was in the Narrows on a reef uh, no longer exists. It basically, what was left of it had to be destroyed during the construction of the Veranzano Narrows Bridge in the 20th century. Um, but the idea was that Fort Hamilton would be a land-based defense for Fort Lafayette. It was kind of, you know, to back that up. Um, and obviously where Fort Hamilton is uh, was closer to Fort Lafayette than Fort Wadsworth on the shore of Staten Island. Hmm. Well, let's actually go uh, retreat a little bit, no pun intended, from the fort up on the hill where Tiger Heights is now. Um, who was General René Edouard de Roussy and what was his history in the area and what did he do? So René uh, Edouard de Roussy was a brigadier general in the U.S. Army. Uh, he was one of the people who was really put in charge of the construction of Fort Hamilton, which was in the 1820s. And so because this was kind of going to be his pet project to oversee, he bought a plot of land in what is now Diker Heights, uh, roughly at about what is today 82nd Street and 11th Avenue, which if you know the neighborhood, you know, is really one of the highest uh, points of elevation in the neighborhood. Uh, so we bought a plot of land and built what really was the first significant home uh, in that entire area. Uh, and it was for, you know, two major reasons. One, you know, he was the Brigadier General. So from a strategic point of view, being up on one of the highest points in Southern Brooklyn, he had a great view of the harbor. He could obviously see Fort Hamilton in its entirety from there originally. But, you know, it also was kind of nice because you had a beautiful view of the harbor, strategic view or, or not. It was just in sort of a nice place to sort of uh, settle with his uh, family up there. But it was really the first major home uh, that was built in that area. Well, let's fast forward to after the Civil War. Who was Frederick Henry Johnson? So Frederick uh, Henry Johnson was the person uh, with him and his wife, Jane, uh, who purchased the DeRussi home. Uh, this was a couple of decades after he had passed. His wife owned the property then. And Frederick uh, Henry Johnson purchased that property because, again, it was really the only major significant home in that point. Wanted it for the same reason DeRussi wanted it was beautiful view of the harbor, uh, just gorgeous uh, piece of, you know, property. And really also had the spark at the time of, you know, this could be a beautiful neighborhood. It was not really a neighborhood right, you know, back then. It was kind of barely used farmland, still fairly woodland, um, and then the military fort and some new developments coming here and there, but bought it in the back of his mind with the idea of this land is valuable, uh, you know, for the same reason that the Rusi saw it as valuable, minus the sort of uh, military aspect of it. And he was not only a property developer, but he was also politically engaged, maybe setting the stage for uh, our developers these days, uh, in that he helped the city of Brooklyn annex what would become Diker Heights. Uh, and that yeah. was actually before Brooklyn itself became part of Greater New York in 1898. So he spearheaded uh, Brooklyn sort of uh, subsuming what would become Diker Heights? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, you could write an entire book about the history of Brooklyn that just takes place in the 1890s. It was such rapid change. So the town of New Utrecht, again, settled in 1657, was basically dissolved in 1894 when it was incorporated into the larger city of Brooklyn. Uh, and that basically lasted for just four years, because then in 1898, the city of Brooklyn is then annexed to the larger city of New York. And you went from just in a few years, New Utrecht kind of being its own little separate town to just being a little subsection of the city of Brooklyn, which in turn, now it's just one neighborhood of one of five boroughs of a larger city. So just rapid change in less than a decade of this area, which is the entire story of Brooklyn and the city as a whole in the 1890s. Wow. Also want to add that when Brooklyn became part of New York in 1898, the population of the city of Brooklyn was actually a million people 
uh, which was pretty big in those days. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jeremy Wilcox of Custom NYC Tours on this program. This is episode 121, I believe, 121 and 122. I've lost count already. And we're focusing on Diker Heights in Brooklyn. We'll be back in a moment. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back and you're back to rediscovering new york and this is episode 122 by the way and we are visiting diker heights in brooklyn my first guest is jeremy wilcox jeremy is the founder and owner of custom nyc tours it's a great tour company uh, many of uh, the tours which are focused on brooklyn jeremy what are some of the tours that people can take advantage of this summer at custom nyc tours Forgot to unmute myself. Uh, the two most uh, popular tours I've been doing this summer are my Central Park walking tour and my Midtown Landmarks and Architecture tour. I also run a tour of Victorian Flatbush um, in Brooklyn a couple weekends a, a month. But those have really been my sort of hot sellers this year. And you've gone back to doing tours in real time, um, sort of as we're coming out of the pandemic. Yes, all, uh, all in-person walking tours this, this year. And if people want to find out about your tours, how can they do that? They can, you can go to my website, which is www.customnyctours.com. Um, my calendar of tour offerings is there. You can also email me if you wanted to kind of create a custom tour. I'm happy to do that as well. Great. And I know I've been threatening to come on your tour of Victorian Flatbush, which I really need to do uh, when I have a free Saturday uh, or a free Saturday afternoon. Um, we talked about Frederick Henry Johnson, uh, who helped spearhead uh, New Utrecht becoming part of Brooklyn, but he actually didn't live to see when Brooklyn became part of New York. But his son, Walter Johnson, did, and he was responsible for a lot of the development in Diker Heights. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about Walter? Yeah, so he really is, if anyone is, the father of Diker Heights as we know it. Um, there were a number of developments down there in southern Brooklyn at the time, um, including, you know, what they called Bensonhurst by the Sea that were taking advantage of people basically looking for suburban living near the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this came on, this is also the time of the, in the late 19th century, of the rise of Coney Island as we know it today. Um, and so he saw the potential in his father's land of creating this development. So he began buying up uh, property and building beautiful, beautiful homes. Um, about of the 150, 
50 homes that were developed around this time, about half of them actually still exist. Um, but the idea of creating, you know, what we think of today as a gorgeous suburb. Now, today we would think of suburbs as being kind of, you know, outside the city, but keep in mind, things moved a lot slower uh, back then. So these, the suburbs in those days would have been, you know, kind of on the outskirts of, uh, of Brooklyn at that point. And Dyker so we, Heights saw the potential of being the next big suburb. So even though this was within the city of Brooklyn at the time, it was still conceived as suburban, what was, what was then uh, considered suburban housing and not urban housing. Yeah, you know, in, in contrast to tenement living or just apartment and living in general, you had single family homes. Um, it looked very different. You know, all of these developers, you know, they were installing gas lines, water, telephone, electricity lines, most of which were being put underground, planting beautiful tree-lined streets. So it looked a complete contrast to city life as we, you know, as they thought of it today and even, sorry, thought of it then and even think of today. You know, it was, it was a key visual contrast, but also accessible by transportation to get to the jobs in the city core. Was there public transportation from what, what became Diker Heights to downtown Brooklyn and to Manhattan? Yes, there was a ferry service down by the, the water that you could get. Um, and then there was back what was then uh, sort of private commuter rail um, that went, you know, into Manhattan and up into downtown Brooklyn. Eventually, obviously, you would have the New York subway coming in along the area. Most people going out to what is now the R line along Fourth Avenue. But you did have over there a private railway as well as a ferry that would bring people to where they needed to go. When would the neighborhood that we see today, uh, aside from Fort Hamilton, which is older, obviously, when would we begin to see the neighborhood looking like it is today? Would it have been that way by the First World War? Would the develop would most of the development have come after that? You know, a good chunk of it would have. Um, like I said, a lot of the earliest homes were built right around the turn of the century. Um, you also had right in the early 20th century the development of the Diker Heights uh, golf course and the surrounding park. Um, you had schools coming in there. So the, really the neighborhood was, I think, more or less settled by the start of the, the First World War. Now, after you get to post-World War II, um, you know, a lot of the homes, because the neighborhood was never landmarked in any way, a lot of some of the earlier homes and properties were either torn down and built with new homes and these giant mansions or significantly renovated, um, some to the point where they might not be recognizable as the original property. But the basic, I guess, footprint of Diker Heights as we think of it would have been settled by around the First World War. Mm. Let's talk about some of the unique aspects of the neighborhood from an architectural standpoint. What, what kind of things would you see in Diker Heights that you generally would not see in other neighborhoods in the city and even those that were built around the same time? Well, besides the sloping streets that give uh, it the Heights part of the name, um, you have, you know, just massive homes, again, single family homes, although eventually there would be on the outskirts of the neighborhood, some apartment buildings put in, um, but just big homes. Um, and because they're on the hill, you have, the, you know, on a lot of the streets, you have the sort of garage level on the street level. They're also at kind of a, a tilt, but beautiful kind of stone frames. Uh, most of the home being sort of above the street level. It's very unique. I mean, architecturally, it's it doesn't look like any other neighborhood in New York City in terms of its, you know, kind of very distinct suburban style. And I don't know if Walter Johnson was responsible for this, but maybe you can um, uh, enlighten us on it. There was uh, there were deed restrictions built into some of the lots that were sold. So uh, houses would have to have certain kinds of characteristics would have to be set back from the street in order for them to actually go up. Yeah, you know, uh, Johnson would have been primarily responsible for a lot of that. And most of those, you know, suburban neighborhoods, including Victoria and Flatbush, which we learned to earlier, did have at the time very strict deed restrictions. They really wanted to control the way the lots were used, the way the homes would look. They wanted a very distinct, uniform architectural style. A lot of the earlier homes would have been Victorian style, Queen Anne style, um, and they really wanted to kind of protect the character uh, of the neighborhood, you know, for branding purposes alone. And of course, one of the benefits of buying some of those houses would be the water views, which could go all the way across Sandy Hook in New Jersey uh, to Sandy Hook in New Jersey. Yeah, and the, um, you could see, you know, the Palisades, you could see all the way to the Palisades in one direction. Yes, Sandy Hook, uh, just beautiful sweeping Atlantic Ocean views. Um, don't really have as many of those today uh, due to some newer developments. But, you know, when these homes were first being built, I mean, just 
beautiful views. Even today from the sort of higher parts of, you know, Diker Heights, you can see the, the Veronzano Bridge and you, you really kind of get a nice view from there. Hmm. Except, of course, if you have the Veterans Hospital in front of you. Yeah, if you're looking at sort of directly due south uh, vantage point, you, you, you're really not seeing much besides the hospital uh, these days. And there's an interesting horticultural aspect of the neighborhood, which are sugar maple trees. Uh, uh, I think it was Johnson who, who planted sugar maple trees way back when. Yep, he would, those were some of the uh, the earliest uh, plantings he did. Uh, would have been like um, on the avenues and along, some, you know, 20 along the streets, you know, so there were it was kind of very beautiful and distinct compared to, you know, Elm or London Plain, other types of trees you would typically see in these neighborhoods. And there was some notable uh, school construction. One, I believe the first public school for children of, uh, for blind children was built in mm -hmm. Diker Heights, um, maybe in the first decade of the last century. Um, and there's another large private school on one end of the neighborhood. That's Poly Prep. Used to be called, maybe still be the Polytechnic Preparatory Day School. I went to day camp there. When was uh, Poly Prep established? So the school itself was established in downtown Brooklyn on Livingston Street in the 1850s. Uh, it moved to Diker Heights uh, right around World War I, uh, with the campus being open to the public in 1917 um, on a part of land that used to belong to the Diker Heights golf course that was given to the school. And it's still there today. Yes, um, absolutely. Just on the sort of west end of where the golf course and park is. And Jeremy, of course, we can't talk about Diker Heights without speaking about something that it's famously known for, and that are its Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been known as the undisputed capital of Christmas pageantry, and alternatively as the king of Christmas lights. And uh, I imagine also that uh, some of the stockholders of Con Edison really appreciate uh, the Christmas displays. You want to talk about that, how they got started? What is it about this this extravaganza that makes it really unique, certainly in New York City? Yeah, it's really, um, in the United States, probably the most unique residential Christmas display. Um, you mentioned Con Ed. You know, some residents apparently, as legends say, spend between five to $8,000 on the monthly electric cost uh, for those homes. Uh, but according to legend, the Diker Heights Christmas tradition started on 84th Street uh, with Lucy Spata's house. Um, and that house, by the way, is still really the go-to spot to see every Christmas. And she just would go really overboard with the Christmas decorations, lights and things like that. And at first, the neighbors really hated it. They saw it as a bit over the top. And they complained like, hey, next year, you know, can you think you can maybe dial it back? Um, and she was like, okay. And then so the next year she just added more and it kind of, you know, people were like, oh my gosh. And then she starts, started adding more and it really kind of became her own thing. And then a few of her neighbors on 84th street, including the Palazzato family who are now uh, gone from that street, unfortunately, um, started sort of competing with her and adding their own pageantry. And then it became a case of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, and so people began kind of creating these elaborate Christmas decorations. You know, it's if you can Google pictures of them and, and really see for yourself. Um, and it got so out of control that, you know, while families like the Spatas still do it themselves, nowadays you have private companies uh, like BNR and Demiglio, who people hire and spend obviously thousands of dollars to store and decorate their homes every year. I mean, it's it's really unbelievable the pageantry of it. It's it's you know become a major tourist attraction. Um, it obviously wasn't the case last year, but on a typical year before COVID, you would have on any given night, you know, a couple dozen tour buses dropping tourists off uh, along the golf course so they can go and wander and see all these amazing lights. Wow. Do you have a sense about how this display every every Christmas adds to the sense of community in Diker Heights? Yeah, you know, if you talk to the Spata family, you know, Lucy Spata's whole thing is, you know, she never really saw it as over the top in a bad way anyway. You know, she said, this gets people into the Christmas spirit. You know, it's, it's fun to decorate like this. Um, in recent years, there obviously has been some controversy, you know, a lot of the people still continue to decorate elaborately and they, they like it, you know, they like to show off one, their beautiful homes, but they're really unique decorations and every house is one of a kind. Um, but then there's some people who obviously the downside is, you know, when you have over the month of December, over a hundred thousand, you know, tourists uh, visiting your neighborhood, it, it, it does create problems. You didn't anticipate traffic, um, litter, uh, just, you know, the, the human traffic of the uh, the neighborhood but i would say overall most people still seem to like it but it you know it has become controversial among some residents in recent years 
Well, on a personal note, one of my fondest memories of starting Christmas on Christmas Eve, uh, my father would always drive us out to my grandmother in New Jersey and we lived in Sheepshead Bay. And mm -hmm. so we would get off the Bell Parkway and uh, take in some Christmas lights before uh, proceeding uh, through the Battery Tunnel on the West Side Highway then <laughs> to the Lincoln Tunnel and out to New Jersey. Um, I still have those fond memories of it. Jeremy, yeah, I, I'm yeah, sorry, I just I would, you know, even if you've heard about the crowds, don't get turned off. It is still today one of my favorite Christmas traditions in New York City. And I didn't know that you could go on tour buses to do it. Then, wow. Jeremy, I going on foot. Not, <laughs> well, it depends how much you want to uh, you want to see. Jeremy Wilcox of Custom NYC Tours, thank you so much for starting us off on this episode on Diker Heights in Brooklyn. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with someone who was from Diker Heights who returned to the neighborhood to open up a business. Uh, we'll be back after a short break. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern time, 3 p.m. UK time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York. Support from the program comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give him a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495-0317. You can like this show on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions about the show or would like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am deed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Before we get to our second guest, I also have to give a shout out to someone in the industry, Christine Baranka. I frequently don't uh, accolade competitors, but uh, I love Chris. Chris lives in Diker Heights, and it's because of Chris that we have our second guest here tonight. So thank you so much, Chris. 
And our second guest is Alfred DeCipio. Alfred was born in Brooklyn, what used to be the Caledonian Hospital in Fort Greene. His family, he and his family first lived on 75th Street and 11th Avenue in Diker Heights. A few years later, they moved to Sunset Park. And then the family, which was large, spread all over Brooklyn from Diker Heights, Bensonhurst to Sunset Park, Park Slope and Bay Ridge. It's a Brooklyn story. As immigrants, the family did what they knew best. They own restaurants, Salamadias, for those who don't know what that is, that's a store where, among other things, you can get salami, uh, a well-known master tailor, and even an Italian ice factory in the family, Gino's. By the late 80s, Alfred's mom's family moved to Howard Beach, but his dad's family stayed in Brooklyn. This was the connection that brought him back to Diker Heights after opening their first La Villa restaurant in Howard Beach, first to Mill Basin, then Park Slope, and eventually full circle to Diker Heights, where he now owns and operates La Villa Restaurant, which is on 86th Street in Diker Heights. Alfred DeCipio, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I got to ask you this because uh, I, we have similar family history. What parts of Italy is your family originally from? So uh, my mom's from Salerno, south of Naples. My father is from the Abruzzo region, south of Pescara directly across from Rome. Great regions. And when did your family first come to the United States? So my mom's uncle, which is actually probably the first that resided in the 20s in uh, in Diker, actually. And it's funny, I'm on Ancestry.com and I love so much information comes, World War I draft cards. They were original glaciers when they came here. So they did a lot of... uh, and a work in the churches, uh, restoring um, the uh, stained glass windows and windows for the homes. You didn't have Anderson Opella back then. They made the actual windows, the frames and all. Mm. When my ancestors from Italy came to the States, um, came to New York, first they lived in Little Italy, then they moved to Brooklyn. But your uncle uh, started his uh, American life out in Diker Heights. That's yeah. great. Um, I want to ask you a question about family history. Italian ices are pretty famous. And uh, yeah. some of us older New Yorkers remember Gino's Italian ices uh, really well. When was that business first started? He started, I think, um, they, we had a, a cousin in the family, my mom's cousin, that was here before us. So, so my mom and my father, they came in the 50s, uh, mid-50s. And then my mom came here in 1958. So her cousins were here a little early. And he... This guy did everything. He actually invented the pizza press, the one that you'll see in the fast food pizzerias that presses the dough down. So he was, he was like one of those guys that was so smart, was maybe too smart. But um, he started and pushed my uncle to make it because they would make it in the house. Like I remember back in the day, they would bring fresh snow inside and put uh, fruit juice on it. You know, that's basically uh, something done all over Italy. But at 62, I think they finally opened the doors and actually built a factory on uh, 39th Street in Brooklyn and New York Avenue, right under the L. And um, we talked a little bit before airtime about uh, our common history of working in the family's factories in the neighborhood. Yeah. My, my dad and his brothers owned an electronics business in Borough Park on, on uh, 60th Street. Yeah. Um, you worked in the family business, too, and in that factory, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, a lot of summers. A lot of great memories, hard work when they, you know, they were, they were, they had a great business because back in the day, everyone in Brooklyn sat on their stoops in the summer. No one had air conditioning. If you had air conditioning, you're probably in the wealthy part of Brooklyn, which we didn't include to be Brooklyn. Right. Right. And so a lot of stoop hanging out at night and cooling off and they sold a lot of, uh, well, ice is what we call gelato. Right. But it's, it's water-based stuff. And it was, it was some really good products they had for many years. Cold, sweet, and wet. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did you decide that you would go into the food service business? So uh, my mother's brother, Gino, who, who he actually opened a restaurant because of his cousin in Bay Ridge. His first restaurant was in Brooklyn. Somehow or another, over the years, they all ended up opening places in Long Island. So everyone left Brooklyn. So when I opened up my Park Slope location, he was so happy because it was on Fifth Avenue. And I remember my mom, when they lived in Sunset Park, would shop on Fifth Avenue because she had a paisan who owned the butcher shop. His name was Vinny, Vinny the Butcher, they called him, right across the street from where my restaurant was. And I didn't realize that because I was a kid. So when my, my uncle came to visit me when I was opening, he was 
so happy. He said, everyone ran away from Brooklyn. The only thing they had was the Italian ice factory. So he was so happy that we, I came back. I didn't go into another neighborhood in Long Island and, and try to compete uh, against a family member, you know, so. Uh-huh. Was, was your first business in the Slope, in Park Slope? My first store opened in Howard Beach. And then okay. the second was Mill Basin. You know, then, then Park Slope came third and then Dyker last. Recent, most recent. When did you decide that you would open up the restaurant in Diker Heights? It's funny because um, I have friends that still live in Diker from my college days. And um, I never thought of Diker and the Mill Basin store and the Howard Beach location runs is a, a family that owns the supermarkets, the Almonte family. They own really great supermarkets. They, they started with Key Food and they ended up opening in Howard Beach a food emporium, which that name was was lost a little bit in New York for a more higher end supermarket. And they said, listen, we have, we just bought the shopping center. We had the supermarket there and we need a great place. Can you open, can you open next? There's a small place now it's empty. And I said, let me look at it. And I was like, wow, this is really back in the neighborhood. You know, it's, it's, it, it felt good, you know, because everyone's opening, running to all the hip places in Williamsburg and we opened in Park Slope and, and Dumbo. But to go back into the neighborhood, I thought it was a little risky. But you know what? It's it's still a neighborhood. It's like like you're talking about the Christmas lights, which by the way, don't go on the weekends. You'll you'll avoid all the lines and traffic. You go Monday through Thursday. But um, the homes are spectacular. The neighborhood people, like everyone thinks, oh, the whole neighborhood changed and it's gone. Of course it changed. It's Brooklyn. Neighborhoods change. But the neighborhood I, I saw driving around is solid. And it's funny because it became it was Italian. I don't know before the Italians what what every immigrant that came in and stopped in Brooklyn. So it's still very Italian. It is very Asian. There's a lot of Chinese, but they've been there for 20 something years. And now it's funny because I'm starting to see hipsters. Like you start to see, I guess it's it's more livable. It's you have a park, you have a golf course, you're close, you have trains, and it's a lot cheaper than getting a little apartment in in like i mean in uh, park slope or in brooklyn heights so it's more family oriented i think our friend chris baranca must have started the hipster trend um so what did it feel like to open a restaurant in the neighborhood where you grew up that you had so much family history in um and that you moved away from but came back to 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 become part of the so- business community there I was young when we lived in Dyker, and it was actually not 75th, but 72nd and 11th. But I remember when I worked for my uncle, he, his good friend had a beautiful house on 11th and 85th, the corner. Those homes are so big. And when I went there and I saw that house, I was blown away. And he had, he had Ma, a Maserati, he had a fry, which I was, I was a teenager, was born. it was just beyond. I didn't even realize we were in Brooklyn because the homes were so different. Like I, like my mother-in-law is from uh, Carroll Gardens and brownstones are spectacular, but there's something about those homes in Dyker Heights where you say, when uh, Jeremy was saying about the architecture and the original homes there, it's so different. So you do have those blocks with a spectacular, but then there's, you know, not necessarily regular homes, but it's just a great neighborhood, you know, surrounded mm-hmm. by Bensonhurst. My cousins are all from the area. They own a saloon media on 18th Avenue and 8th Street for forever Frank and Sal's. So to me, it felt like um, I, I didn't go somewhere new. It's somewhere like that, that I should have been in the beginning. It was, it was comfortable. You know, it was known. It wasn't, it wasn't an experiment, say, opening up from scratch. It was more like, you know, you have so many unknowns when you open a new business. It felt a little more uh, familiar, I can't say, for a lack of a better expression. Oh, it was like coming back home. Basically, yeah. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Alfred DiCipio. Alfred is the owner of La Villa Restaurant, which, do you pronounce it La Villa or La Villa? <laughs> La Villa is the proper pronunciation uh, in Italian, but La Villa is the, the American uh, version. Okay. Um, I have relatives in Italy. I should know yeah. that. But anyway. <laughs> uh, well, okay. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment. Thanks. Thank you. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? 
Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back. This is episode 122 of Rediscovering New York and our program on Diker Heights in Brooklyn. My second guest is Alfred DeCipio. Alfred is the owner of La Villa Restaurant on 86th Street in Brooklyn and Diker Heights. Um, Alfred, we talked about uh, going home and opening up a business at home. Let's talk about the vibe of the neighborhood that you went home to, that you went home to. Um, describe the vibe of the Diker Heights that you that that you love. What is it about the place that that really inspires you? Well, you, you know, it has it has Bensonhurst. You have Gravesend on the other side. It borders Fort Hamilton and and Bay Ridge, mm. so it's kind of like I'm just saying centered, but it, it's so it's 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 just a little different from each other other neighborhood, but it's it's very similar. So. The, and you have a lot of young, you see a lot of young, um, I say kids, but um, you don't, it's the neighborhood factor is still there. Like when you're, when you're in Park Slope, like there's a lot of families moving in now and you see a lot of the old uh, brownstones being converted back to one family. Starting to see the families come back with kids that are not renting, they're, they're putting their roots down. I see more of that in Dyker. There's more roots being down. People are there long-term where originally when we opened Park Slope, you saw the old neighborhood people leaving and selling their brownstones where I see them coming back like in Park Slope, but Dyke is, I think has always been that way. It's been, you go to Dyke and move there, not for a year. You're not, you're not going to transition and change your apartment. You're moving there. You're there 10, 15, 20 years. You're putting your roots down. It's definitely a real neighborhood. When did you open up the restaurant in Dyke Heights? We opened in 2017. Okay. So it's not that long to have seen no. any any changes in the neighborhood. No, but you know what? We did because we started construction, say, in early 2016. And slight changes, not big, but like I said, you see the hipsters coming in because let's face it, you know, you can get more for your money in that neighborhood and you have a lot of access. You, you know, you have a park as well. You have a golf course. You're close to getting on the highway. It's different. So um, you see the changes, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not where 
like you see the changes that I saw in Park Slope in the past with the real estate boom, big changes, but the people coming in, I mean, what are you going to buy in Manhattan for 3 million? Well, you can almost buy, almost buy a townhouse in Park Slope for 3 million. It's going to need a renovation. It's different. Well, I lived in the slope in the 90s and, and it was undergoing the change then. And you did see some of the older right. families who were starting to sell and, and, and move. Um, do you know if, if almost all your customers come from Diker Heights or do you, or do you notice that people who come from other places, other neighborhoods? Um, I see in the daytime, you'll see um, regulars and I have customers. It's funny because customers that would come to Park Slope, I thought lived in Park Slope. We found when we first opened it, oh, you're opening up in my neighborhood. We have one of our great neighbors uh, and customers, uh, a guy named Mike Castle, a great guy. He was in Park Slope. I thought he lived in Park Slope. I thought he was like from my, my wife's neighborhood, Carroll Gardens. Meanwhile, he lives three blocks from the Diker store. And we see a lot of that, you know, so um, they transition, you know. But in the daytime, it's um, it's a busy street, 86th Street. So you get guys either uh, workers uh, from the area, the dealership or just driving down 86th Street, wherever. Now that you've had the business there for four years, is there anything that uh, has taken you a little bit by surprise uh, moving your business back to the old neighborhood? Um, I don't know uh, of surprises. Like um, during the whole COVID thing, uh, I was a little nervous for the store because it was still new, you know, but um, it's like I said, it is really a solid neighborhood. It is a traditional neighborhood with, the aspects that it's changing slightly, but you know, the more things uh, change, the more they stay the same, you know, it, it kind of looks like it's going back because there's actually, I have a couple customers, new ones that have moved back to the neighborhood that were there when they were in their teens and twenties and moved away, they moved to Jersey and now their kids are grown up and they're moving back. Cause you know, it's, it is a really pretty neighborhood. And, and if you uh, want a little more property and you can afford some of those spectacular homes, there's something to be said about those where the Christmas lights are. They're beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Especially if you can get the Christmas lights <laughs> up. Uh, I wonder if you okay. can buy them from the people who uh, had it, if it comes with the, if it comes with the, uh, with the property, I have to talk about uh, Chris yeah. about that and see if it's part Package of any contracts of sale. Christine could throw that in there. Um. As a business owner, is there anything you find challenging about, about running a business in Dr. Heights, Alfred? Um, well, my industry itself has been challenging. Besides COVID, it's been uh, New York City's a tough place for restaurants. Um, but because you get more stability when you're in a neighborhood versus saying in Manhattan, besides what happened with COVID, the Manhattan restaurants got really, really hurt. You have stability in where people are living and in uh, single family homes and you have residential apartments. It's different. You know, you, you, it's, you're not rolling the dice as much if you open properly, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard, hard to explain. Like my, my business has changed so much, but uh, it is already a difficult business, but I don't uh, for years. Oh, you should open in Manhattan. You know, I love Manhattan. I think it's the greatest city in the world to, but uh, it's a tough city to do any kind of business, not just restaurant. And for restaurants, you can drive down any avenue and see how many restaurants in every block. Besides your competition, the, the factors that have changed the business. So to me, I was always, you can see all my stores are in neighborhoods. They're, they're to me, more solid. You, know? you have more stability and more consistency for restaurants. important. As a business owner, is there anything that you wish were in Diker Heights that isn't there right now? Maybe to give uh, uh, a potential business owner in the neighborhood an idea about something they can do. Um, the only the only thing I feel, uh, you know, opening in Park Slope kind of put me on the map. I feel like those parts of Brooklyn, uh, Park Slope, Brooklyn Heights, Dumbo, Williamsburg, they're always talked about. The restaurants, they always go to compare the restaurants in those neighborhoods versus Manhattan. But uh, the businesses, say, in Bay Ridge, in Diker, in Mill Basin, they get pushed aside in Howard Beach, in my Queens neighborhood. They're not as popular or famous. And so that's the issue. So you really have to do something solid to get uh, noticed. Hmm. One last question before we go. Do you see yourself opening up another business in, in Diker someday? Uh, no, I'd be competing against myself. That's the only business. <laughs> the only thing I know to do is cook and uh, make pizzas. So. 
Oh, but we don't want you to compete I'm, against I'm yourself. I'm practicing my dancing skills, maybe some sort of dance studios. <laughs> <laughs> well, Saturday Night Fever was yeah, uh, filmed in the right. mixed neighborhood over, so uh, right. uh, maybe someday. Alfred DiCipio, thank you so much for joining us on on our, on our show Very tonight. With Jeremy's uh, uh, history of Brooklyn, pretty wild. Mm. Uh, we have just finished this visit to Diker Heights in Brooklyn. Our guests were Jeremy Wilcox from Custom NYC Tours and Alfred DiCipio from La Villa Restaurant on 86th Street. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors for this evening, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. By the way, I forgot to mention that Christine Baranca is with Compass. I have to th- acknowledge her and thank her again for getting Alfred on the show. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storior. Our engineer this evening is the great Emily Schulman. Our production assistant is Eric Nelson. Our special consultant for the program is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for Coffee Talk XL with Kevin Barbaro right here on talkradio.nyc. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you. you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.